So, Jeff, I have been thinking a lot about stuff that I don't understand. Um, which and, and not as much. But but not not just like the topic, the topics that I don't understand, you know, but like thinking about the concept of not getting something and something that I don't get something that for whatever reason has escaped me. And I understand it cognitively, but the thing I just haven't been able to pick up is manifesting. I, I haven't been able to, to pick that up. Uh, do you manifest? You know, I think I, I do manifest, but I think that when I manifest, it's more me wishing or me wanting something and just feeling like I want it. Um, <laughs> but I don't think that that does me any good. I think that dreaming <laughs> can be helpful because, you know, you can start to push the boundaries of maybe what you could be as you dream. And then you can start to define those into what you actually want and then goals. But manifesting seems like you know what you want. And then you just try and like, you know, be there for a minute. Something I don't like. I do not like, and this is just me, trying to picture what it would feel like to be at a certain place. Because I want to reserve that feeling for when I'm there. Not for now. Because then it's like I'm giving myself the reward without any hard work. You know? But manifesting or just thinking of me being there... I guess I've done it. I don't think it does me any good uh, because I think that then it starts me just being like, you know, me thinking of this mythical world, but I'm not actually doing anything for it. Does that make sense? It does, but I'm going to manifest right now. And I, and I want you to bear with me because I want this podcast to get sponsored by Audible. So I'm going to talk about Audible for a second <laughs> because I, uh, so this last little bit, um, I've started thinking, you know, when the Audible Plus catalog first came out, and if you don't know what that is, essentially included in your Audible membership, you get access to a bunch of other titles, um, a lot of classic books, some new releases, essentially you just get access to a bunch of, um, included content with uh, your membership and, and when audible plus catalog first came out i spent like an hour every single day because there was just new stuff coming out left and right and then it went to weekly and i was just always checking out all the new stuff coming out and i loved it and when that happened i added like 500 books to, to my library and uh since then i've removed a lot of them i've read many of them but as i was thinking of the next book to read i was just cruising i was like i wonder about all those plus catalog books that i've just kind of added throughout you know the last couple of years since it's been on so I was, I was looking through that and uh one of the books i recently read was the compound effect uh which surprisingly was part of the audible plus catalog i was like sure i'll read that i've had it recommended to me a couple times um, it's by Darren Hardy and you know, it, it was a pretty good book, um, kind of in the, in more in the self-help type area. And I feel like that's not normally, I don't really read a lot of self-help books. Um, but I thought it was really good. It checked a lot of the boxes that I, you know, that I look for in a self-help book. Um, 
I think specifically like it's not too long. You can't have a self-help book that's too long. Same with a business book. Just if it gets too long, then it's just like, I don't want it. And the next, it needs to be actionable. It needs to have things that like I can do today. And that's actually the whole point of the book. I've uh, never read it, but I did pull up um, like a little thing for it. And I just, I loved this um, um, paragraph because it's so accurate. And it says, it's time someone told you straight. You've been bamboozled for too long. There is no magic bullet, secret formula, or quick fix. You don't make $200,000 a year spending two hours a day on the internet, lose 30 pounds in a week, rub 20 years off your face with a cream, fix your love life with a pill, or find lasting success with any other scheme that is too good to be true. I've never read this book, but that is a note from Darren, according to this website, and I really like that. And, and that's, that's exactly what this book is about. Um, you can probably infer from the title, the compound effect, but it's about essentially the basic ethos of the book is doing little things. I guess it's not really an ethos, but, um, the basic premise of the whole theory of the compound effect is do little things today. Um, and they build up to big things that, Everything that you do is building a habit. Everything you do is pushing you in a certain direction and is building momentum in that direction. So if you want to build momentum in the right direction, you have to do little things every day. Whether, you know, if you want to eat healthy, you are a little bit more conscious at every single meal what you're eating or and you work out a little bit more you make sure you stand a little bit more often every day at the office you know little things like that obvious things and you know i say that and i was reading it and it was like duh obviously everybody knows that it it, it seems like such conventional wisdom but the way that the author packages it and gives it to you gives it in kind of a nice perspective. I think just having it all at once, all in one place, it was, it was actually, I've actually felt that it was really helpful, even though nothing was really like so groundbreaking, but it was just really nice to have all that stuff in one place in a nice, short, compact book. Well, I, I really think back to that phrase, like success breeds success. You know, it's like you, you do kind of go from one success to another and then it, you almost have a culture of success. And um, I, I think that the compound effect probably is exploring a little bit of that, which makes me really want to read it because that's a phrase that I really like. But for me, I think two things stop me is that one, at what point are you succeeding? You know, like at what point is a little success, you know, and then how do you keep up that momentum? Because we're inevitably going to fail. So it's not like success breeds success and then you're always going to have success. Like there will be failures. So how do you compensate for those to keep yourself on the general track? You know, be interesting to, to think of what he he does. So, I mean, you know, I know that you've made a lot of changes in your life recently. How did this book like what would gelled with you right. about the book? Right. So um, for anyone listening to this book who probably doesn't 
know me on a personal level, I have uh, I recently lost uh, quite a bit of weight, actually, um, over the last couple of months. And, um, you know, I just was in a place where I was in constant pain in my knees and my back. Um, I wasn't happy. I didn't have a lot of energy. And I just needed to... I needed, I needed a change and I, w- I wasn't happy. Um, I felt like I wasn't giving my all and I found myself in ways, you know, like I said, not a lot of energy and not, not, not allowing myself to live life the way I wanted to live it. So I made a lot of changes, started eating a lot healthier and started working out a lot more. And all this took place before the compound effect, but in my health goals, I, I hit a wall. And actually at the time when I read this book, I was actually at that wall because I was pretty frustrated. I was feel like I'd made a lot of progress and now I just hit a wall. And, you know, I felt like I wasn't making progress. I felt like I was working harder and harder than ever, but I wasn't gaining any results. And this book helped, you know, reaffirm that perspective that, you know, I don't want to have a healthier lifestyle um, for next month or or even next year, but for the rest of my life. And that even though I'm not seeing results today, I know if I choose to eat a salad instead of a cheeseburger, my body's going to function better. I know that if I get enough sleep, I get more sleep as opposed to less sleeps and watching TV that my body is going to feel better and I'm going to be able to respond more positively people to everyone around me. I know that if I go work out that I'm going to have more energy. I'm, you know, I, it's just doing these things. And even though I'm not, you know, even though I'm not seeing results today, I'm going to see results in the long term. So it was just a reaffirming place when I hit that wall to, get back on the horse and just reaffirm to myself that I'm doing this for the long haul. I'm doing this not for tomorrow or next year, like I said, but for the rest of my life. Mm. Powerful. Yeah. I really like that. You know, actually that starts to touch a little bit on one of my books. Would you be okay if maybe we hopped over to there? So yeah, let's rock and roll. uh, One of the books that I had read recently is called the founders and it's the story of paypal and the entrepreneurs who shaped silicon valley Uh, so it's by jimmy sony and read by jonathan ross and this book gives you the story of paypal but the cool thing is is it's not just a story of paypal it's a story of x.com and the paypal predecessor and then turning into PayPal, and then the, the combining of x.com and PayPal, and then, you know, eventually the story of going public and all these different things. So it's this, it's this big story. But the reason why there's that connection is when I think of what the employees at PayPal and the managers and the all the leaders at PayPal did, man, they had crazy amounts of momentum. Um, I have never worked in mm-hmm. Silicon Valley yet at that type of startup. But I can imagine it a little bit where, you know, everybody's in the office, everybody's kind of sleeping there, everybody's doing their thing. And that crazy amount of momentum that you feel, I think, can be dangerous because it can lead into groupthink or, you know, too much hype. But it was it was kind of cool as we were kind of talking about the compound effect to see that PayPal 
in just the three and a half years of his existence from pretty much founding through IPO, through successful acquisition by eBay, there is a lot of compound effects. I mean, you know, you, you think of the starting of the first, well, not, not the first, but the, the best of the early online banks, uh, and all of the struggles that they had to go to go through from a regulation perspective, from customer acquisition, from the technology itself, and then having to face competitors, then having a merger, you know, and then eventually going public and then getting acquired. Like all of those are really big steps in an entrepreneurial journey and PayPal experienced all of them. So for a little bit of perspective, uh, PayPal was started by um, a group of people, including Peter Thiel. X.com was founded by Elon Musk after Zip2. These two were battling for market share and then eventually came together and uh, Elon Musk became the CEO. Really crazy story that I did not know that he gets kicked out of his company while he's on his honeymoon. So he leaves on his honeymoon and he gets booted. <laughs> crazy. Um, that That's no fun. No. And it's funny though, because he actually like says, wow, what a good move, um, which is kind of crazy. And he wound up keeping most of his stock in PayPal. Um, you know, he wasn't bitter about it from that perspective and it obviously made him a lot of money. And then Peter Thiel takes over and takes it. There, there was a, there may have been another CEO in between uh, Peter Thiel and Elon Musk, or there was one that Elon Musk replaced. There was another CEO in there. Um, but anyway, I just think of, you know, our own entrepreneurial journey, you know, Kevin and like, you know, having, you know, a, a successful merger, which is insane to even use those two words synergistically, because, you know, I have seen <laughs> like firsthand from clients. Uh, so secondhand, because <laughs> not firsthand, but secondhand from clients, <laughs> I've seen at least three mergers and none of them have been very successful. And in fact, you know, for the most part, they're laying off a lot of people or they're shutting down the project in one case, you know, it's pretty much they bought this company and then they shut it down pretty much not for strategic or not for like competitive reasons, but they just strategically could not make it work. Um, and it, I mean, mergers are really hard. So then doing that in a space that's never been done before. And then, you know, going public, the, the story behind them going public is really crazy. So they were the very first company to go public after 9-11. So 9-11 happens and tanks the stock market, horrible things. And Peter Thiel, his point was, look, we don't have competition when it comes, not that they were taking advantage of, of this horrible thing. They were just thinking from their business strategically, what should we do? Because everybody was saying, just wait. And he's like, no, let, let's go now. Because his thought was, is that there's nothing else to invest in. There's no new IPOs. So that makes them, in a weird way, look a lot better. Um, you know, Kevin, I, you, and I, you and I both know somebody that was trying to go mm -hmm. public around that 9-11 time frame, and they didn't. And that company never really was successful. And I'm not saying that I wonder what they would have done if they would have gone public. But it was a very successful IPO for them. And in such a unique time. And they were doing right. something when nobody else was doing it. And in fact, they were like one of the only, they were like for the first three months or something like that, they were the only IPO. And then eBay comes in and, and they just keep getting more and more valuable. And then eventually eBay buys them. And then eBay soon, you know, spun it out to be, you know, kind of its own independent company. Um, and it was interesting too, because PayPal 
like was so dependent because it was initially just doing payments via eBay. So essentially like eBay was their, you know, like they were, they were like the only public company whose total fate was in the hands of another public company. But you know, eBay <laughs> couldn't have a, eBay couldn't have a competitor to their product and like that, that would stick. And so then they didn't want to shut PayPal down. Um, and anyway, it wound up kind of working out. So for me, the thing that, that blows my mind about all of it is, is that story. Now there's a lot of really successful, amazing entrepreneurs that kind of come out of what's termed the PayPal mafia. And the book kind of goes into why that's actually not a great, um, thing, because I mean, they're not, they're not like a mafia, you know? Um, and right. it just it was kind of like, hopefully, this, yeah, no. And, and also it kind of really diminished the role of all of the amazing women that were in the organizations and things like that. But there were amazing entrepreneurs that came out of that. Like Reed Hoffman is just an example, um, would go on to found LinkedIn, but where I was kind of disappointed in the book, although I loved it, I loved it a lot. And it really inspired me as an entrepreneur. I was like, I mean, cause while I don't think that there's all the best things with hustle culture, also, if you're trying to do something interesting in the world, you have to hustle at it. Um, but the thing that I, I was kind of disappointed with the book is I wish that it would have just taken half the book talking about the PayPal experience and then half the book talking about all of the amazing companies that spawned, like literally just one by one or a chapter going through each different small company. Now that would have been a big book, but I would have loved not just hearing their names and not just having it in the epilogue of what they did. I would have loved to like really go into what they did. And maybe that was the original intention. And I know it's hard to get interviews and stuff like that, but anyways, overall really enjoyed it. You learn a lot about business from these things. I actually think that this is, you know, reading a biography of a company is probably better, a better business book than a book about business. Does that make sense? No, I to totally agree. It's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's an example, you know, instead of just vague principles, you know, you, you see it in action, you see what went well, what would, what didn't. And, you know, the good and the bad, definitely, definitely. If you want to learn about business, reading about, you know, not just reading business books, but reading books about a business is super helpful, I think. But, but that's really cool thinking about, you know, I, I never thought about that. Obviously I'd heard about, um, you know, Elon Musk and Peter Thiel, but I didn't, I really wasn't aware that a bunch of different companies spawned from that. And it was pretty recently that I even realized that, you know, PayPal was even as early as it was, you know, I, I always thought, right. you know, online banks for whatever reason in my mind, it was like, I'm always thinking like 2010, but you know, they were more than 10 years before that, you know, cause yeah, they started in like 97 or pretty much or up until like right. Especially cause like first time I first time I used an online bank was like, in college though right. i didn't really use many banks but still you know people who were maybe in a lot of ways kind of ahead of their time right but, you and know so, hey, it worked out know, for them so peter Thiel founded palantir obviously which was a billion dollar company elon musk would go do tesla and spacex then reed hoffman would do linkedin yelp came from there as well um I know that there was others, but those were just kind of the, some of the ones glow. Wow. Um, 
I mean, I mean YouTube. Yeah, even YouTube. just crazy. Wait, really? YouTube YouTube came out of PayPal. I mean, not out of PayPal, the company, but from uh, somebody who worked at PayPal. Yeah. So Steve Chen, Chad Hurley, and uh, Jawad Kareem were all early PayPal employees. Crazy. That's nuts. Also, kind crazy of crazy. To, it, it's crazy to think how that they only uh, sold for one point six five billion YouTube. <laughs> that that is crazy to think about now, where it's you know the second largest search engine in the world, and the first is Google. But half the time, people are just googling YouTube videos. I know when I when I want to find a YouTube video, half the time I Google YouTube video of this. You know, it's like because. So I mean, it, because. It, if you could factor that in, I, I right. I mean, I, I want. I wonder if you just took. I wonder if you could take out every you know in Google's search numbers in this mythical database that I'm sure that doesn't exist. That's both of them. But you could take out all of the video searches that go through YouTube or anything that links from YouTube from Google. And if you take that out, I wonder if Google would still be bigger. Probably, but probably not by a lot. Though I also no, I have no idea. I'm just totally spinning the wind. But yeah, but so, you know, it, I'll be honest, every time I click on a video and it doesn't take me to YouTube, I just go back. Right. Search for right. YouTube. <laughs> um, also, just for anybody listening. <laughs> Sorry, you are saying? We can't have, uh, for some reason, a podcast without having some sort of delay. So that's why we talk over each other. It's not because we're jerks. It's because we always have some sort of weird delay. But that's what we're going to live with. And it's all going to be or good. Or we're jerks. Yes. So... What I want to I like know to think that we is, have that option. Oof. I think that the delay is getting worse. Um, okay. Well, why don't you tell me about your second <laughs> book? So the, you know, we were just talking about technology. It actually flows pretty good. So I read a book um, by Jeremy Parrish called A History of Video Games, also on the Audible Plus catalog. You know, throwing that in, manifest a little bit. Love to get sponsored by Audible. So, you know... Jeff, if you're listening, you know, hit us up. But uh, not that he's probably that involved with Audible, but, you know, still manifest. Anyway, but History of Video Games is a short book, uh, just under five hours, and is really interesting. I mean, I love to read about things that I don't know anything about. You know, I'm not much of a video gamer. You know, I, I, I do, as I've admitted in a previous podcast, I do still play my Game Boy, um, my Game Boy Advanced and SP on occasion, but, you know, I don't really own any system. I, I think video games are awesome and that's why I don't own a system because I wouldn't be here. I'd be playing them right now, but, uh, yeah, it was just cool to learn about video games and learn about how, you know, they've been around and kind of the place that they're taking in our culture. Maybe double clicking on kind of the role video games have played for people. Um, 
what were some of the good things about video games and what were some of the bad things about video games that stood out if the book covered it at all? So it didn't, it didn't hit on it too much, um, but kind of along the good things, something that I thought was really interesting, like it didn't really go over like what are the pros of cons of using video games. Um, it did hit on a couple of the items that, you know, Oregon Trail you know, kind of everyone jokes about Oregon Trail, the video game, you know, but it was one of the very first video games ever made. Um, and uh, and it was purely for educational purposes. It was so kids could learn about the Oregon Trail. Um, and also most of most of video games, like in the, the early days where everything was made, you know, most of the video games were created and most of the initial research for video games and interfaces was all done by universities, which is partly why so many different companies can make video games and why there's so much IP out there that isn't um, strangleholded because educational institutions were trying to figure out this computer thing, which opened up the flood floodgates for other people to be able to create video games, you know, for the first couple decades, you know, even up till about the eighties video games were for hardcore developers. They were for people, you know, if you weren't in an arcade, it was people making their own video games. You know, there were a few companies like Atari and it kind of talks about their rise and fall and talks about the birth of Nintendo and, um, and, uh, you know, Xbox and PlayStation and a bunch of these. But, you know, a lot of that came from, you know, universities just doing the research before there was that economic driver. And um, also talking about kind of total total U-turn, but maybe not talking about the good. But, you know, I feel like it's really easy because every time a movie comes out, there's at least, you know, it was when we were kids, you know, getting a Game Boy game. Every time a movie would come out, there'd be a new Game Boy game about that movie. And most of the time it would suck. And sometimes it would be fun and sometimes it'd be awesome. But it was kind of easy to come under that perspective when you really weren't in gaming that all gaming did was follow popular culture that all it was doing was like, Oh, this is popular. I'm going to make a bunch of video games about it. And it actually talks about that, how, you know, shoddy video game makers and systems trying to protect their IP, which because it was kind of on the basis of universities and having it free, how a lot of people can make video games for systems that they don't have any IP for, which is also something I never thought about. Um, but the whole point was that, you know, it, it went on that it video games just didn't follow culture. It dictated culture in a lot of ways, how it pushed, you know, like Sonic the Hedgehog, Super Mario. You know, these are obvious characters, you know, that came from, you know, Pokemon, all these things. They really started in video games. Um and then they became popular. And you know, while those are prime examples, it gave a lot of examples in the book of how popular culture actually started to follow video games. And just I thought that was thought that was really interesting. And not not I never thought of it like that, you know, because you always think, oh, you know, culture says this thing in video games is small. Well, you know, video games, you know, at least in like the tagline of the description of this book is 
annually video games gross more than Hollywood does. And I don't know, it doesn't, it didn't really talk about that fact in the book, but you know, when you really break it down, that, that actually makes some sense. Hmm. Yeah. I'm definitely not a video game player myself, but I do think that there's a lot of um, things that it teaches kids about technology. I remember when you and I were kids, you know, we would go over to the Crossman's house and, you know, they would be hooking up for land parties and, you know, understanding, you know, server capacity and, um, you know, networking these different computers together and bandwidth and, and all these different things that I was kind of exposed to um, that I think is, is really interesting, just the way that computers can interact uh, together. Um, oh my gosh. In fact, land parties. Yeah. <laughs> those were so much fun. Oh man. I totally forgot about those. Just bringing a yeah. bunch of computers into somebody's basement and playing Starcraft on land. Oh, that was so fun. That I remember was. we played Starcraft. There was this one map. I think it was called Godzilla. Where you were one of the Protoss, the one that's like this giant energy ball. And everybody would, you know, they could, you know, you just have a thousand battle cruisers just chasing around Godzilla and he'd just be throwing these energy balls or whatever. I don't even know what it was, but he just destroyed everything. It was just everybody versus this one character. I remember how fun that was. Oh, <laughs> it was so fun. And for our one listener, Luke Crossman, we got you, brother finally got you a shout out on the podcast Dude. thanks for listening and for leaving love a comment you. on all of our videos you're the best love you man um but, but you know it's actually interesting but yeah i hadn't uh oh maybe say your thought and then it actually connects really well to my next book oh so i okay we're playing read my mind um <laughs> but no, I was just going to say it was it was a really fun reading, um, reading about video games and reading about, you know, how they were, you know, such a such an integral part of our life and driven so many things, you know, economically, socially, culturally, and just it was cool. Definitely worth a listen. So one of the earliest video game creators, his name is Richard Garriott. And he's the one that created the Ultima series. And I've never played it, but I know that it was super, you know, super popular. He's the one that, and the reason why it jogged my memory was that he's the one that created the phrase like massive multiplayer online games or whatever. You know, like that was like multiplayer online role-playing games. That's what it is. He's the one that coined that phrase. And he's MMORPG. That's the one. He's the, yeah, so he's the one that created that. And and did these you know big games and he um was the president of the explorers club and i think he couldn't be an astronaut for for a few reasons that were health oriented but he's like one of the only private individuals that's gone to space i think he went up to the international space station spent like a couple weeks there or something but what's really interesting is that his dad was an astronaut and you know his dad was a you know Stanford trained engineer and um, got his son kind of interested in it. And the reason why there's that is that my, um, my last book is called Moonshot. 
And it really is interesting how, um, like when you kind of contrast people like the Garriott's, like the very scientific, you know, the, the scientist astronaut, those did not exist in the early part of the space program. And that's essentially what Moonshot is all about. Um, so Moonshot is the story of um, the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo programs um, and the astronauts that were there. But it really highlights two main astronauts. And that's Alan, Shepard's and Deke's, Alan Shepard and Deke Slayton. And uh, they're, they were both the, in the original group of Mercury 7 astronauts and stayed at NASA for a really long time. And there's a reason why those two are highlighted, not just because they're friends, but, um, and I'll get to that in a second. So Mercury was started. Um, so essentially there was a lot of test pilots. They were pushing the boundaries of space. Um, they, you know, had airplanes that you would pilot that would go up to, you know, almost 50 miles up in the air, you know, and space starts at mile 63. And so they were really pushing the envelope. Um, when Eisenhower, when they were kind of presenting a whole bunch of people who could be potential astronauts as, as the Soviets were initiating the space race, um, they actually came out and they said, well, maybe explorers or gymnasts or, you know, big game hunters or, you know, a bunch of different types of personas of people that could handle stress um, could be good astronauts because initially they weren't flying the plane um, or flying the spacecraft. Um, but then Eisenhower said, no, just get test pilots. You know, they're, they're trained for emergency situations. They're in the military command, even though that NASA was a, you know, um, a civilian like core. Um, and so they got them. So the, the initial seven were test pilots, which included um, Alan Shepard and Deke Slayton. Deke Slayton was actually the most um, experienced test pilot. And so what winds up happening is they're starting to fill up slots um, at, you know, they're starting to fill out, Hey, here's what we're going to do as far as sending a, a man up to space first. And so what NASA's um, plan was, was to shoot somebody up, have them cross the barrier of space and then come right back down. Well, just before that mm -hmm. happened the Russians sent Yuri Gagarin up and he actually, you know, cleared and didn't orbit in space. So they like totally, you know, they totally beat us. But um, the sad part is, is that if like, um, oh man, there, there's a lot to this, but like we totally could have beaten them. Um, but that's a whole nother, a uh, whole nother thing. But Alan Shepard was the very first man. In space. So they sent him up for 15 minutes. He came down and was the first American, uh, first American in space. Um, and Deke Slayton was, uh, going to be, you know, a little bit farther along because eventually John, you know, so Gus Grissom goes up and does the same flight. John Glenn winds up orbiting the earth three times before having some issues and needing to come down. Um, so there was a lot of good momentum. Well, Deke Slayton was slated to go when suddenly started to have a heart arrhythmia. <laughs> so an irregular heartbeat. Um, and he was taken off flight status. And he was obviously devastated. This is exactly what he wanted to do. He was in the field he was in. And the, but the coolest part about him is that he thought and he knew one day that maybe he would go into space, but he needed to figure out this hard thing, but he was totally disqualified. In fact, he even um, resigned from the Air Force because they wouldn't even let him fly alone. And so he what winds up happening with him is that he becomes the head of the astronaut office. So it's actually his job and responsibility to fill out 
all of the trips. So he winds up spending, you know, literally 20 years of his career just sending his friends up into space. Um, well, Alan Shepard becomes backup for one of the Gemini missions. So, you know, Mercury was essentially just getting to space. Gemini is understanding space. So for example, like Ed White was the very first astronaut to like go outside of a, you know, to go outside of a spacecraft and to actually do a spacewalk. And then Apollo was all about getting to the moon. Um, well, Alan Shepard, he was a backup for Gemini. And then he wound up having some sort of crazy inner ear issue very depressed you know it's his dream to go to the moon and deke slayton talks to him he's obviously you know the guy that has the most empathy he's like come and join me at the astronaut office and so the whole story right is really about the progress of getting to the moon you know it, it highlights a lot of you know how we how we eventually get to the moon but we're my favorite part of so i have two favorite parts one is that it focuses a lot on what happens after neil armstrong and buzz aldrin and michael collins go to the moon uh, for Apollo 11 and, you know, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong land, they do the first moonwalk. And then it's kind of like everybody's knowledge of the moon goes away. But, you know, there's Apollo 12. And then maybe some people remember Apollo 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. So there's six more flights to the moon. Only 24 people have gone to the moon. And then of those 12 have walked on the moon. And um, I think it's really cool to focus on that element of space, of, of space flight. So the, the second part that I really, really love was how Deke Slayton and Al Shepard never gave up on their dreams because what winds up happening is right at the beginning of, of, uh, of the Apollo program, uh, you know, around like Apollo seven or eight or something. Um, there's an experimental treatment that could potentially solve this inner ear issue that Alan Shepard has. And he does it. He does this experimental surgery. And it totally works. It restores him to flight status. And then he actually flies on Apollo 14 and walks on the moon. In fact, he was the one that, um, Oh, wow. He was the one that, um, hit the golf ball. So like he had like this little thing with a little club on it. He hits a golf ball. The other thing that's really interesting about him is that I had recently gone to a space museum and I saw a moon rock that he brought back, um, from so like kind of like thinking about his moon flight and it was really cool like they had like the earliest version of the lunar rover and they were exploring uh one of the older geological sites so they had this volcano that had exploded and they tried to get to the rim to get to some of the oldest rocks they didn't quite make it to that it's a really cool story that i didn't know anything about right like because you're thinking about like this is translunar orbit um exploration like it's absolutely incredible and and nobody ever talks about it um but then here's my favorite freaking part of everything. Deke Slayton, he just, you know, he's, he has a cold one day and he just starts stuffing down the vitamins and, and then he just kind of keeps taking them because he feels better. And then he notices his heart rhythm going away and he like, can't explain it. He starts going to all these doctors. And then anyway, so Alan Shepard gets back from, um, from Apollo 14 and the Deke's like, please help me convince all these doctors. Cause he has to have like seven or eight people, you know, uh, sign him off on this. Well, eventually he does. And then he winds up flying and it, he does the first apollo soyuz mission so so soyuz is like the russian aspect apollo is um the americans and deke slayton flies up and they actually dock together and they wind up going in and shaking hands so it's kind of like this culmination of the cold, cold war because you like think of when alan shepard and deke slayton start and then where they both end their careers they end 
racing the Russians. They end with Deke Slayton extending out his hand and shaking the Russian commander's hand. I mean, what an amazing story that I had no idea of. I love that Deke Slayton just, he just put in the time, you know, and he never gave up on his dream, you know, and he, he waited the longest of almost any astronaut except for Don Lind, you know, like, I mean, what an amazing story of not giving up, of sticking to your dreams. And this is like a health thing too. It's not even like his ability. Like he was very capable of going, he just couldn't. And then they hung in there. And so super inspirational story from so many fronts. I absolutely loved it. I've listened to a lot of books about space and I, and I am currently listening to way too many books on space, but this one was honestly one of my favorites <laughs> and I loved it a lot. Okay. That is, those are awesome stories and I didn't know any of them, uh, but those are all really, really cool. Um, that's nuts to just want to do something so much that you just keep trying for. I don't know how many years we were trying to do that. 10, 20. Well, so, you know, so the, he was so, part of so it. Deke Slayton get, becomes an astronaut in like 1957. And then he flies, you know what? I might as well just get you the right dates. Um, so he's, he was in the initial group. Oh, 1959. So he went, so in 1959, he does that. And then he flies on the Apollo Soyuz um, uh, thing in 1975. Holy crap. So yeah, that is a long time to be pushing for something. Time. And wow, you know, he was also, um, you know, he was like in so when Apollo one, you know, killed Roger Chaffee and Gus Grisham and, and Ed White, he was, you know, he was there when Apollo 13 was having those issues. Like he was there, he was in the room for everything. He was in the room when, when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed at their lunar rover, like he was the guy. And Oh, also really cool thing about him is he flew bombers. Uh, he flew bombing missions in the European theater and in the Pacific theater uh, during world war two. So, you know, you have like this war hero, bomber pilot, test pilot, and then eventually he winds up going to space. Such an awesome story. Oh, I just loved it so much. I honestly want to listen to it again. Man, that that's the type of life that makes me feel like I really got to step up my game. Like, <laughs> like, like I, I am currently neither a war hero nor an astronaut. And, and he was both. And he, he did a lot of cool stuff and it really makes me feel like Kevin, you got to bring something else to the table. Like some yard work's not going to cut it anymore. <laughs> you got to step up your game. Oh my gosh. Uh, that is awesome. Remind me what the name of this book was. Moonshot. And uh, I actually believe Moonshot, it's on the Also a great name. What? Check that out, yep. Jeff. Yeah. Yeah. Mr. Bezos. But so, yeah, I'll, I'll have to check that one out. That's. Oh, oh no. man. Oh. You go. No, you go. Okay. Uh. I'll go. I'll go. Oh, delays are horrible. Um, we're going to, we are going to work on this. I, I actually didn't really realize the synergy between all the things we were talking about, like, you know, video games, like the founders, like the entrepreneurship, online banking with that. And then kind of like the business book and the momentum, you know, building on, on that. And then 
moonshot. Like, I, it was kind of cool to think that we thought of these books independently and yet how synergistic they were. That was that was kind of fun to have that conversation and to be thinking about the role of technology, the role of momentum, you know, the the accomplishment of these incredible goals and how they're all kind of synergistic. Um, that was fun for me. I love this conversation. Yeah, it definitely felt like we planned it. Um, which, you know, I mean, these books, these are just books we just happen to be reading. And I think... Like one of the one of the awesome things that I, that I've learned, you know, when you read a lot of books, you start to see how more and more things connect. And that's not just re reading books. Like you learn, and you start to see the interconnectivity of so many things. You start to see how other things apply, and four books that are really very very different. Um, seeing all these similarities between them. That's just one of the beauties. That's one of the best things about learning. You know, I, I feel like every time I learn something, I learned that it also relates to something else. You know, that nothing, nothing is really by itself that really, you know, it's connected to something else. So, you know, read books, go to the Audible Plus catalog, check some stuff out. There's some good ones. We just gave you a few great ones. Thank you all for listening. We really appreciate you turning in, tuning in and, and having the, the kindness to spend some time with Kevin and I as we discuss this. And we hope that you have a wonderful day. We're excited to come at you next time. And if you have any other suggestions for books that we have to listen to, please give them over to us. Thank you all. We'll talk to you again next time. See ya.